This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. She offered me 50 grand to whack Kurt Cobain. When she offered me money, god dang, I wish I would have taken it. But I know who whacked him. That's a quote from Eldon Hoke when documentary filmmaker Nick Broomfield interviewed him about his claim that Courtney Love offered him $50,000 to kill Kurt Cobain. Two days after that interview was recorded, Eldon was found dead. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. This is our second and final episode on the conspiracy theories surrounding the death of Kurt Cobain. Last week, we covered the official story of how Kurt died, as well as some context. 
this week, we'll talk about the suspicious details of his death. It's because of these details that many people do not believe Kurt killed himself. The conspiracy theory is that Kurt Cobain was murdered and that his death was framed to look like a suicide. There are three popular variations of this theory, and all of them point back to Courtney Love. These are, of course, only theories. Officially, Courtney Love is the victim of a horrible tragedy and completely innocent. The first is that Courtney conspired with one of their nannies to kill Kurt. The second is that she conspired with Dylan Carlson, Kurt's best friend, to have Kurt killed. The third variation is that Courtney paid a man named Alan $50,000 to do the hit. Officially, Kurt Cobain died on April 5th, 1994, from a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the head. Three days later, on the morning of April 8th, 1994, his body was discovered at his home by Gary Smith, an electrician sent to install security equipment. When police arrived, they found a note at the scene and ruled Kurt's death a suicide. He was 27. But as details came out about Kurt's death, many people began speculating whether or not something more sinister had transpired. Before we dive into the theories about who might have killed Kurt and why, let's talk about the day his body was found and why many people find the circumstances around his death suspicious. When Gary, the electrician, arrived at Kurt's home on the morning of April 8th, 1994, he noticed a body through a pair of French doors leading to the room above the garage. There were two ways into the room, a set of stairs on the west side that led to the French doors Gary saw Kurt through, and another set of French doors on the east side which led to a balcony. The only way onto the balcony was through the inside. At first, Gary thought he saw a mannequin, but then he looked closer. Quote, I noticed it had blood in its right ear. Then I saw a shotgun lying across his chest, pointing up at his chin. End quote. Gary immediately called his boss at Vika Electric, who, instead of calling the police, dialed KXRX-FM, a local radio station, and broke the news to DJ Marty Reimer. At first, the station thought the call was a hoax, but they decided to notify police regardless. The first people on the scene of Kurt's death were three Seattle Police Department officers, Joe Fuel, Van Lewandowski, and Jeff Getchman. They arrived at 10.15 a.m. on April 8th to find the French doors at the top of the stairs leading up to the room locked. Minutes later, the fire department arrived and broke through the other pair of French doors leading out onto the balcony. Glass went flying across the room, some of which landed on Kurt's body. Kurt was found lying on his back with the Remington shotgun rested between his legs. His left hand was still wrapped around the barrel, which was pointed toward his head. Contrary to several published reports, Kurt's face was intact. Other than a pool of blood on the left side of his head, there were no obvious signs of trauma. It was falsely reported that Kurt's driver's license was found beside his body. People pointed to this as evidence that Kurt killed himself, suggesting he placed his license in plain sight to help identify his body after he was found. But that wasn't the case. Kurt's license was inside his wallet, which was lying on the floor nearby. Police found several items on the scene, including a brown corduroy jacket, a single spent shell casing, $120 in cash, 
and a cigar box filled with drug paraphernalia. They also found a brown paper bag containing a box of 22 live 20-gauge shotgun shells. The box originally came with 25 shells. One was used to end Kurt's life. The other two remained in the shotgun. These items were photographed and recorded by police. Shortly after police and the fire department arrived on the scene, three coroners and three homicide detectives showed up. It was determined that Kurt died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. No foul play was suspected. At a first glance, the note made it seem obvious Kurt's death was a suicide. But certain details from the police report are strange. For example, the lack of legible fingerprints on the shotgun. Before we speculate as to why no legible prints were found, it's important to understand the nature of fingerprints. There are two different types of fingerprints, visible prints and latent prints. Visible prints are just that, visible with the naked eye. Um, Think prints made on a surface that creates an impression, like dirt or clay. The second type, latent prints, cannot be seen by the naked eye. Police officers lift these prints with tape or by using a dark powder to make them visible. Once analyzed, latent prints are deemed illegible or not legible. There's a common misconception that no prints were found on the gun that killed Kurt. That isn't technically true. Four latent prints were lifted during its official examination. However, none of them were legible. There were also no legible prints found on the gun cartridge, as well as the pen used to write Kurt's suicide note. Most of the conspiracy theories about Kurt's death reference the lack of prints as a clear indication of foul play. But it's actually extremely common not to find legible prints on a shotgun. This is usually because of factors like insufficient smooth surfaces, environment, and handling. Still, is it possible someone wiped the gun down after shooting Kurt with it? and then position the gun so that it would look like a suicide? It's certainly possible, but the lack of visible prints isn't enough proof on its own. Well, then there's Kurt's suicide note, addressed to his childhood imaginary friend, Boda. In it, he mostly describes his relationship with music. The note is pretty long, 570 words to be exact, and yet only four lines are dedicated to Kurt's family. Without those lines, the note could be interpreted as a letter of resignation from the music industry. They read, quote, Francis and Courtney, I'll be at your altar. Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis. For her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. End quote. Those four lines came at the end of the note, after Kurt signed his name. They're in a slightly different handwriting than the rest of the note, at least the letters are considerably larger than the rest of the note. Which makes some people believe they were added later by someone else. On April 8, 1994, the day that Kurt's body was found, the Seattle Police Department made a copy of the note for the Cobain family. Detective Grant analyzed the note, and here's what he found. We experimented by putting that note on a hard surface as compared to a soft surface. In other words, maybe he wrote the rest of the note with some paper underneath it and then moved it when he, made, when he wrote that line and wrote it on a hard surface. That didn't, didn't make that much of a dis- difference. When you examine it real closely, you're going to see that those particular words were written either with a different instrument or with a finer point pen or they were written by someone else that used less pressure on the pen. 
However, the original note was sent to the Washington State Patrol's forensic document examiner, Janice Parker, who spent two weeks analyzing the paper. On April 22, 1994, Parker determined that the entire note was, in fact, written by Kurt Cobain. However, handwriting analysis is not an exact science. Unlike DNA testing or fingerprint analysis, handwriting analysis has a subjective component that can lead to unreliable results. There are a number of possibilities to explain the change in handwriting of those four lines. One being that Kurt wrote most of the note while sober and added the final lines while intoxicated. Which leads us to another strange detail, Kurt's toxicology report. It indicated Kurt had 1.52 milligrams per liter of heroin in his blood at the time of his death. That's three times the lethal limit. Which is a ton of heroin for someone to have in their body, even for a heavy user like Kurt. One theory suggests someone injected Kurt with a lethal dose in order to kill him, but that seems unlikely. Why drug him and shoot him? A more convincing theory is that Kurt could not have shot himself because of the high levels of heroin in his body at the time. He would have been too incapacitated to pull the trigger. However, heroin can remain in the system for up to three days. It's entirely plausible that the high levels in his bloodstream were not all from the day he died. They could have built up over the course of several days. After all, no one knows exactly how Kurt spent those final days after leaving the rehab facility in Los Angeles. Right. This was before everyone had a cell phone and multiple social media profiles. It's not like you could look to Kurt's Twitter feed or Instagram story for clues. But Kurt did leave a paper trail. Or, at least, someone did. Our story will continue in a moment, after the break. And now, back to the story. The last suspicious aspect of Kurt Cobain's April 1994 death is his credit card statement. When Detective Grant learned that Kurt Cobain's body had been found, the first thing he did was look into Kurt's most recent credit card transactions. He learned that Kurt used a credit card to buy $43 worth of flowers hours before his body was discovered on April 8, 1994. But that credit card was not in his wallet when police arrived on the scene. It was never found. This didn't seem particularly significant until later, after the autopsy report. The report determined Kurt died three days before his body was found, which means there is no way Kurt bought flowers on April 8th. So, who did? No one knows, for certain. There were no more charges made on Kurt's card after April 8th. That's interesting, because April 8th is the day Kurt's death became public knowledge. Exactly. Detective Grant immediately informed the Seattle Police Department of Kurt's credit card activity, who then contacted Kurt's bank. The police were told that the bank was only able to identify when the transactions were logged onto their mainframe computer, but not specifically when the attempt was made or whom it was made by. Meaning the activity on Kurt's statement could have been delayed since transactions were not shown in real time. So, now that we've covered the suspicious aspects of the crime scene, let's dive into the conspiracy theory that Kurt was murdered. The conspiracy theory is that Courtney Love killed Kurt. Detective Grant himself believes this theory, which is noteworthy since he was working closely with her at the time Kurt's body was found. 
Here's what he says he believes happened. I believe that someone held the shotgun in his mouth and put his hands on the shotgun and on the trigger, his finger on the trigger, and pulled the trigger and dropped it. And then they left the room, pulling the door shut behind them. Uh, Again, I don't believe that the police department or the coroner is going to have any evidence that can prove that that did not happen. Note, the grant does not say who specifically had their hands on the gun. He doesn't claim that Courtney physically did it, just that she was involved. Detective Grant found Courtney's behavior so suspicious that he taped all of their conversations during his investigation into Kurt's whereabouts, which he later released to the public on his website. Before we discuss why Detective Grant remained so suspicious of Courtney, let's take a look at his credibility. Detective Grant joined the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in 1969 at the age of 22. After only one year on patrol, he was selected for the Elite Specialized Crime Activity Team, which worked undercover to bust felony crime rings. In 1972, after a few short years on the job, Detective Grant was promoted to detective, one of the youngest in the country. But by 1975, he started to feel burned out by the dangerous nature of his work. So in 1975, he left to open a retail music store in Malibu, saying, quote, I was enjoying the relative peace of the music business better than the stress of police work, end quote. But the business went under two years later, and Detective Grant ultimately decided to set up his own business as a private investigator. Detective Grant's former colleagues and superiors at the Sheriff's Department say he was highly respected. They have nothing but good things to say about him. So it seems Detective Grant is someone we can take seriously. Now, why doesn't he agree with the official police report ruling Kurt's death a suicide? According to Detective Grant, Courtney suspected Kurt was having an affair with a woman named Caitlin at the time a drug dealer in Seattle, whom both she and Kurt bought heroin from in the past. Remember those flowers purchased with Kurt's credit card? No one knows for certain who they were for, but it's possible Kurt bought them for Caitlin. According to Detective Grant, Courtney was obsessed with Caitlin. She even asked him to set up surveillance at her home while he was searching for Kurt. But Kurt was never spotted there. After Kurt's body was found, Detective Grant arranged a meeting with the Cobain's entertainment attorney, Rosemary Carroll, on April 13th back in Los Angeles. Rosemary was not just the Cobain's attorney, she was also a close friend of theirs. During the meeting, Detective Grant learned that Kurt recently requested Courtney be removed from his will. Rosemary also told him that Courtney wanted her to find her a, quote, vicious divorce lawyer. Rosemary honored Kurt's request, and Courtney was removed from his will, but he never signed the revised copy. So it was invalid. Exactly. With Courtney still named in Kurt's will, she would be entitled to everything if he died. But if they divorced, she would only get half, at best. And let's not forget, Courtney made Kurt sign a prenup before their wedding. But is that enough for her to have him killed? Maybe. Kurt was unquestionably worth more to Courtney dead than alive. And if she was furious with him for cheating on her, that only adds fuel to the fire. But many people maintain Kurt was depressed and that his suicide was entirely plausible, including his own bandmates. To this day, Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic do not believe there was a conspiracy to kill Kurt. And... 
their disdain for Courtney is well documented. In 2001, Courtney sued Grohl and Novoselic over the unreleased song, You Know You're Right, included in a Nirvana box set due to be released the fall of that year, and asked the court to dissolve the Nirvana LLC partnership. Grohl and Novoselic countersued. The lawsuit was settled a year later in 2002, with all parties staying in the LLC and You Know You're Right being featured in a retrospective album. But in 2011, Courtney accused Grohl of seducing her daughter, Frances, which Grohl denies. Frances has never spoken publicly about the accusation. Courtney ultimately ended her feud with Grohl and Novoselic in 2014 at Nirvana's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Afterwards, Courtney tweeted a photo of her hugging Dave Grohl and captioned it, quote, the most magical part of the evening. Thank you, Dave. Love you. I know this made him smile up there, end quote. While Courtney's relationship with Grohl and Novoselic appears to be on the mend, the remaining members of Nirvana never questioned the validity of Kurt's suicide. Between their feud with Courtney and the suspicious nature of Kurt's death, why wouldn't they? They maintain Kurt was depressed. Many people do. And a lot of that has to do with Kurt's overdose in Rome a month before his death. But others believe Kurt's overdose in Rome was actually a failed murder attempt. And the only person with him at the time was Courtney. On March 2nd, 1994, Kurt overdosed on a cocktail of champagne and rohypnol, or roofies, in his hotel suite in Rome. The overdose sent him into a coma. He nearly died. Initially, it was suspected that Kurt's overdose was a failed suicide attempt. But Nirvana's management company, Gold Mountain, immediately denied these claims, releasing a statement the following day that said, quote, it was definitely not a suicide attempt. He wanted to celebrate seeing Courtney after so long, end quote. The doctor who treated Kurt in Rome, Dr. Osvaldo Galetta, didn't think it was a suicide attempt either, a belief he maintains to this day. Quote, we can usually tell a suicide attempt. This didn't look like one to me. He mixed tranquilizers and alcohol, and when you do that, you're playing with fire, end quote. Courtney disagreed. She later claimed the incident in Rome was undoubtedly a suicide. But Courtney didn't make those claims until after Kurt was no longer around to speak for himself. Some theories suggest Courtney slipped the roofies into Kurt's champagne in an attempt to kill him. After all, the prescription was in her name. Wouldn't Kurt be furious if that were the case? It's hard to imagine a scenario where he would wake up from a coma to discover his wife tried to kill him, only to carry on like nothing happened. Unless he didn't realize Courtney drugged him. Well, maybe he assumed he took too many pills by mistake while he was intoxicated. True. And while it could be merely a coincidence, Courtney waited until after Kurt's death to suggest the incident in Rome had been a suicide attempt. It could also be a pretty good way to convince the world that her husband was suicidal. But it was Courtney who called 911 and ultimately saved his life. If she wanted him dead, why not wait before calling for help? Yeah. Well, there's another interesting piece to the Rome incident. According to both Gold Mountain and Courtney Love, Kurt left a suicide note there, too. In the note, Kurt allegedly spoke of how sick he was of touring and how Courtney, quote, didn't love him anymore, unquote. He also accused her of cheating on him with Billy Corrigan, quote, I'd rather die than go through another divorce, he wrote, referencing his parents' split when he was nine years old. It's easy to find a copy of Kurt's official suicide note online, 
but not one of his note from Rome. That's because Courtney burned it. Which isn't necessarily suspicious. It's not hard to imagine why someone wouldn't want to keep a note from their husband's failed suicide attempt. But it also makes it impossible to know for certain that Kurt tried to kill himself. If Courtney did try to kill Kurt in Rome and failed, did she succeed a month later in Seattle? Maybe. But if she did, she couldn't have acted alone. She wasn't in Seattle when Kurt died. She was staying in Los Angeles for work with Francis. On April 7th, the day before Kurt's body was found, Courtney overdosed in her suite at the Peninsula Hotel where she was staying. Following her overdose, she immediately checked into the same rehab facility Kurt escaped from before he went missing. Some people think this could have been intentional on her part, the perfect alibi. It means there was no way Courtney saw Kurt after he flew back to Seattle the night of April 1st. So on a scale of one to 10, the probability that Courtney killed Kurt herself is a one. It's not possible. If she wanted Kurt dead, she would need someone else to help her carry out the job. Which leads us to the first variation in our second conspiracy theory that Courtney conspired to have Kurt killed for her. When Kurt arrived back in Seattle in the early hours of April 2nd, his home was completely empty except for a live-in nanny named Michael DeWitt, whom everyone called Callie. Callie claimed Kurt woke him up around 6 a.m. on the morning of April 2nd, and the two chatted briefly before Kurt took a taxi into town. The taxi driver later told police Kurt mentioned wanting to find a place to buy some bullets, since his home was recently burglarized, which explains why the electrician who discovered his body was there to install security equipment. The taxi driver dropped Kurt off at a store called Seattle Guns on April 2nd. The shotgun shells he purchased were the same ones found in a brown paper bag at the scene of his death. A receipt inside the bag confirmed this. After buying the bullets, Kurt's whereabouts are unclear. So aside from the taxi driver, one of the last people confirmed to have seen Kurt before he went missing was Callie, the nanny. Which would make him an ideal person for Detective Grant to talk to during his search for Kurt. But Callie never spoke to Detective Grant one of several reasons why Detective Grant remains suspicious of Kurt's death to this day. On April 7th, the day after Detective Grant and Dylan looked for Kurt at his home on Lake Washington, they returned to the house at Courtney's request. She asked them to look for the shotgun, which they ultimately did not find. But they found something else that was interesting. A note from Callie addressed to Kurt. Detective Grant believes the note was left there for him to find not Kurt. He thinks it's the reason why Courtney asked them to return to the home in the first place. Like the other notes in this story, Callie seems a little odd. In it, he chastised Kurt for not calling Courtney and said he couldn't believe Kurt came to the house without telling him. Which makes little sense considering Callie saw Kurt at home a few days earlier, on April 2nd. Callie also called Courtney in Los Angeles and told her Kurt had been home. By the time Dylan and Detective Grant found Callie's note at the Cobain residence on April 7th, Callie was already on a flight to Los Angeles. He was on his way there to care for Kurt's daughter, Frances, while Courtney was in the hospital and later rehab. If Courtney had Callie kill Kurt, she could have intentionally overdosed so Callie would have an excuse for not being in Seattle when Kurt's body was discovered. 
That makes sense theoretically, but intentionally overdosing seems like a bit of a stretch. Even for someone involved in a murder conspiracy, how would Courtney know if she'd survive? Mm, Fair point. Why kill for money if she wouldn't be alive to use it? And that's all the evidence for the Callie theory. So, did Callie kill Kurt? He was the only person staying at the house when Kurt died. If he didn't kill him, it seems plausible he could have been in on the murder conspiracy. Detective Grant never met Callie, and to this day, Callie refuses to talk about Kurt's death on the record. While Callie's behavior at the time is pretty strange, there's no concrete evidence to support the theory that he killed Kurt. On a scale of 1 to 10, the likelihood of Callie's involvement in Kurt's death is around a 3. The second person suspected of conspiring with Courtney to kill Kurt is his own best friend, Dylan Carlson, who failed to show Detective Grant the room above the garage while they searched the house for Kurt. Dylan also bought the gun used to end Kurt's life. Dylan was Kurt's best friend, though. He claims he never would have purchased the gun for Kurt if he thought Kurt was suicidal. But his story about the room above the garage changed. When he and Detective Grant heard the news of Kurt's death, Detective Grant questioned why Dylan failed to mention the room. Dylan brushed it off, saying it was just a dirty little room. But later, he claimed not to know it existed at all. It's important to remember that many of the key players in this story were addicted to drugs, including Dylan. Addiction is messy and complicated, to say the least. People with the disease aren't known for being reliable. True. Dylan maintains his innocence, and again, there just isn't enough evidence to support the theory that he killed Kurt. It seems even less likely than the Cali theory. We'd rank it around a one or two on a scale of one to ten. But while Dylan and Callie deny any involvement in Kurt's death, there is another man who claimed to know the person responsible. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to conspiracy theories. In 1997, a man named Eldon Hoke claimed that not only was Kurt Cobain killed, but he knew who did it. Known as El Duce, Eldon was a controversial musician in Seattle who claimed Courtney offered him $50,000 to kill Kurt Cobain. He denied taking her up on the offer, but swore he knew another man who did. El Duce seemed eager to tell anyone who would listen, appearing on the Jerry Springer Show and in the National Enquirer to promote his story. It might seem like El Duce was just hoping for a piece of the spotlight, but he passed a polygraph test about his story. Polygraphs aren't fully accurate, but it does at least point to El Duce's conviction that he was telling the truth. In Nick Broomfield's documentary, Kurt and Courtney, El Duce let it slip that the man who accepted Courtney's offer was named Alan. Unfortunately, no one was able to follow up with him about who Alan might be, because two days later, El Duce died. He was decapitated by a train in Riverside, California. A lot of conspiracy theorists believe his death was related to the statements he made for the Kurt and Courtney documentary. But El Duce was a notorious alcoholic. He even admitted to being drunk while being interviewed for Broomfield's documentary. The timing of El Duce's death is definitely interesting. But an autopsy ruled his death an accident, citing the high blood alcohol content in his body when he died. 
So who is Alan, the man El Duce claimed was responsible for carrying out Courtney's plan for cash? No one knows for sure. Some have speculated that it might be another Seattle musician named Alan Wrench, but there's no real evidence to support that. However, there are a number of rumors circulating online that claim this supposed Alan was furious with El Duce for disclosing his name during the interview with Nick Broomfield, and that he was with El Duce right before he died. But that's all they are, rumors. Of all the variations of the theory that Courtney had Kurt killed, El Duce's story is the one that seems most likely. The fact that El Duce passed a polygraph test is pretty compelling. But polygraphs aren't a perfect science, so it's not enough concrete evidence to confirm the theory. On a scale of 1 to 10 for plausibility, it ranks around a 5. Now that we've covered the various theories about who might have killed Kurt, it's time for our verdict. After much research and thought, we believe Kurt did kill himself. His death is certainly compelling. Whenever someone as young and successful as Kurt commits suicide, we're left wondering why. Kurt had a new daughter whom he loved. By all accounts, he was crazy about Frances. He said holding her was, quote, the best drug in the world. Why leave her behind? He was also wildly successful. So many artists would give anything for the love and recognition Kurt received for his music. And even if his marriage to Courtney ended, he was only 27. He could recover and find someone new. It didn't have to be the end for him. But depression and addiction do not adhere to logic. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, there are on average 123 suicides per day in the United States as of 2018. And as of 2016, firearms accounted for 51% of those same suicides. Men are also 3.5 times more likely to die by suicide than women. And as of 2014, 21.5 million American adults battled substance abuse, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. No amount of fame, fortune, or love could stop Kurt from killing himself if that is truly what he wanted to do. Depression, especially coupled with drug addiction, can be immensely difficult to overcome. Although Kurt's death is certainly interesting, there's simply not enough evidence to support the murder conspiracies surrounding it. Kurt and Courtney may not have had a perfect relationship, but we don't think she would have killed him or conspired to do so. At least at one point, she loved him, and he was the father of her child. Courtney's innocent. Strange details, like the lack of legible fingerprints, Kurt's credit card activity, and the different-sized lettering on Kurt's suicide note aren't enough to say he was murdered by anyone. In 2014, as the 20th anniversary was approaching, the Seattle Police Department's Public Information Unit asked that Kurt's file be reopened. Detective Michael Chizinski reviewed the case and determined the initial ruling was correct. Kurt committed suicide. He came to this conclusion based on the lack of concrete evidence to the contrary. The details people find most suspicious, like the lack of legible prints on the gun and the high levels of heroin in Kurt's bloodstream, can all be explained with science. So while it is certainly possible to speculate about the case, we agree with Detective Chizinski. Kurt killed himself on April 5th, 1994. Before that, he dramatically influenced grunge music and brought alternative rock to mainstream audiences. Kurt Cobain was a complicated, thoughtful person who voiced the downtrodden feelings of American youth. 
He impacted thousands who emotionally connected to his music. And when he died, they felt like they had lost their voice. And that's why the conspiracy theories arose, because it was too hard to consider that Kurt, facing mental illness, would silence that voice himself. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And don't forget to subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Let us know what your favorite theory is. Join us next week as we explore another conspiracy theory. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Jordan Rousseau and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>